Thanks to Harry's for supporting The Motley Fool. Harry's stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision. So they created a trial offer. Claim yours by going to harrys.com fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, a podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market every day. I'm your host, Vincent Chen. It's Tuesday, September 25th. Uh, feels great to be back in the studio after two weeks away. Um, not that I wasn't enjoying the gorgeous weather and very, very good food in Spain. But if you've gotten away for a vacation before, um, you know getting back can be a bit overwhelming with you know, a mountain of email, long to-do list to catch up on. So with that kind of on my mind, uh, I thought it would make sense to do some catching up here on Industry Focus as well. So we're going to carve out uh, an episode today where we revisit some stories and companies to see how they're doing, um, companies that we've talked about in the past year or two. And joining me via Skype for this discussion is senior Motley Fool contributor, Asit Sharma. Hey, Asit, um, thanks for hopping on today. Thanks a lot, Vince. Uh, good to be here. And I'm so curious, you went to a place that's at the very top of my bucket list on vacation. You went to Spain. How was it? Tell us about it. Yeah, so we... We're able to get a, a good taste for at least two regions, I'd say, for for the country. We spent the first week in the north, in Basque Country, and then the second week we spent it uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean, so in places like Barcelona and Valencia. Um, they say that the north of Spain is is has the best food. I will attest in my you know short time there that I would agree with that. Uh, you know, up in the north. Spain being overall very famous for their small dishes, what they call tapas in the north, they're called pinchos. It's just a re- the food is really great. You get to try all these different things, um, and of course, being in Europe in general, um, everywhere you go, you seem to see all these buildings, these cathedrals, very historical. Um, tons of these small little side streets when you're on the, in the older parts of each city. So I pers- I thought it was gorgeous, and again, we were really lucky with amazing weather and um, just tons of walking every day, exploring. Seeing the different architecture, uh, I I loved it. I highly suggest if it's at the top of your kind of uh, places to visit, that you should make that trip as soon as you can. I'm gonna try. By coincidence, I will be in Europe next week in Germany for about eight or nine days. So I'm gonna see if I can arrange a side trip and uh, at least get to Barcelona if that's at all possible. Yeah, even a day or two, uh, you'll feel like it won't be enough, and it won't be. But uh, if you can route out those. That day or two to visit, um, especially Barcelona. Spend some time on the beach, and it's kind of nestled in between the beach and the mountains. Absolutely gorgeous. I got it, man. I'm not getting any younger, so I got to do this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, let's get into these uh, these companies that we're gonna revisit, and they are Hudson, GoPro, and Procter and Gamble. So the first is Hudson. We'll start with them. Uh, Tigers HUD. So, Asa, you and I first discussed this company uh, on Industry Focus, I think it was back in March. So, at that point, uh, Hudson had been trading publicly for over a month, just over a month. And the stock was down from its IPO debut price of about $19 per share. Now, the shares have recovered. They're in positive territory, around 23 bucks. So, in the last show, we talked about the kind of unique position that Hudson uh, is in as a, a big operator of storefronts, uh, specifically in places like airports, train stations, uh, and tourist attractions. So, in essence, you have this brick-and-mortar retailer that doesn't have to grapple as much with the usual in- industry concerns of attracting 
customer traffic or even the same level of competition because you know they operate in these very regulated spaces like airports, which make up 95% of their business. So foot traffic is much more consistent, barring any major events that impact air travel. And then there are also so many. There's only so many other restaurants and newsstands, for example, within each terminal that they have to compete with. But I'll turn it over to you. Uh, the company reported second quarter results in early August, and most of the stock's gains. Um, Came in the wake of that news. Can you walk us through some of the highlights from that report, and then also some of the key developments uh, listeners should be following? Absolutely, I was impressed uh, that Hudson was able to grow its top line. Uh, reported revenue increased by seven point four percent against the comparable prior year quarter, uh, and organic growth uh, was up over eight percent. So we had talked about the long term growth trend that Hudson had managed. Uh, when we first discussed this stock, uh, listeners may remember that it has a European parent, which owns a chunk of stock called Dufree, which is one of the largest uh, airport retailers globally. But Dufree's total footprint in the U.S. is mostly uh, made up by Hudson's holdings. Uh, so this long-term trend of 9% organic growth, the company reported pretty much in line with that, which caught my eye because we've seen, for some reason this year, so many IPOs after they have their big splashy debut the very next quarter, bam, there's a disappointing earnings report. And I don't know if we'll get to this maybe in a a few weeks from now, but this happened to Sonos, uh, the manufacturer of smart speakers that we also covered after its first report. uh, It went south. So I liked just the simple fact that Earnings were in line. Vigorous growth was there on the top line. Something else that caught my eye, which wasn't as apparent when we discussed the prospectus of this stock, it actually got a concession from the parent company, Dufree, on the amount of royalty fees it has to pay. And that helped, along with some rental concessions at one during the quarter, to improve its gross margin. Now, this company has a very high gross margin. As we discussed, and Vince, you just alluded to, once it gets into an airport, those are long-term leases. So it's a pretty static margin structure from that uh, perspective. And it, the company increased gross margin by about two percentage points to just almost 64%. Very nice, healthy profits there. Um, I also liked the fact that the company has increased its EBITDA. Now, listeners, we, we talk about EBITDA and its relationship to debt all the time on this show. EBITDA, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, and amortization, um, and its relation to how much borrowings the company has on its books. I noticed that when we first talked uh, about Hudson, uh, the company's debt to EBITDA ratio was a moderate 3.5 times. That means that debt was about 3.5 times uh, annual earnings after you strip away the taxes and depreciation, interest expense, etc. Now, through uh, this higher gross margin and also some cost cutting that the company has been able to implement as of this most recent period, uh, the debt to EBITDA ratio has dipped all the way down. My rough calculation is about one and a half times. So, this is evidence of you know higher cash flow that the company has it still has a big debt load it's got about 600 million dollars worth of debt to its parent company um, and that's at an average rate of 5% but given that the cash flow is sort of rapidly increased in a couple of quarters this year uh, something for investors to watch and then uh, finally two more quick things and I want to open up the discussion and, and let's uh, dig in a little bit more 
The company won a new um, uh, expansion award at Boston Logan Airport, which will increase its space at that airport from 25,000 square feet to 34,000 square feet. That's a big win. And also it um, won another RFP request for proposal award at LaGuardia International, as well as a number of smaller international airports in North America. Just a reminder, all of its uh, operations are based in the U.S. and Canada. So Vince, I wanted to open this up because the thing that really, really caught my eye was this new opportunity that Hudson seems to have in food and beverage services. Uh, the company is installing these open island coolers in uh, basically general services uh, shops in airports. So shops where you'd normally go in and, and get some chewing gum or a newspaper or that uh, razor that you forgot to pack. It's installing these open island coolers with packaged food. And it says that this is a, a driver of overall growth. Now, food and beverage is the largest category at 38% uh, for this company. The next is cosmetic at about 15%. So food and beverage is where management is focusing. And I was just surprised at the uh, ingenuity of that. And I don't know if you had a chance in looking through if that also caught your eye. Yeah, I'll just say traveling the past two weeks, uh, you know, at each airport that I went to, um, you know, I saw the Hudson name and uh, oh, uh, beyond their Hudson branded storefronts, uh, probably a lot of the other uh, brands that we saw that I saw things like uh, they've talked about before about licensing with places like Dunkin' Donuts. Um, basically, these storefronts that Hudson has its uh, kind of its fingers in, and uh, we talked previously about uh, you know three percent annual growth in air travel uh, traffic, and then the four percent growth in spending per passenger that they've uh, that they are forecasting and have seen in recent years. But Hudson's growth that you mentioned uh, with some of the more recent results show us that the company is really taking market share and they're experimenting with their storefronts to maximize convenience for travelers now with these uh, these island coolers that you that you mentioned and for. Anyone who has flown recently, I think you can appreciate that the convenience that something like this offers and some of the other things that they're doing with their storefronts, ultimately people want to get in and out of the terminal or out of the airport quickly and smoothly. And then with how airlines are changing uh, the amenities and the services that they offer to passengers as well, less meals offered during the flight, for example. It's very easy when you're going in to grab a magazine or to grab a, um, a, uh, a package of candy, for example, as a snack on the flight. You might grab a sandwich or something as well. And I think there's a big reasoning behind that in terms of this being the biggest category for Hudson, um, the fact that they're also seeing the success of these um, of this new addition to these kind of new sand stores and the tailwind from that how they're maximizing convenience for travelers and taking advantage of what they've dubbed that dwell time you know that waiting time that people build into their itineraries in case there's long lines at the check-in counter or security gates you know if you have an hour and you're sitting at the terminal uh, it's not unsurprising with impulse purchases that you end up buying something from these stores and they want to really give the passengers, their customers at these airports, essentially as many opportunities and uh, kind of ex retail experiences that will get them, uh, you know, to pull out their wallet and make a purchase. And I'll just add to that more broadly uh, with their organic growth, um, how that has trended really consistently 
uh, at around 9% annually, while their comps are still really strong, their profit profitability improves. Um, you have to keep in mind, this isn't uh, kind of an upstart business. Hudson has over 1,000 stores in about 90 locations across North America. And that scale and strength really puts the company in a formidable negotiating position whenever new square footage opens up, like with those opportunities that you mentioned earlier, Asad. And there's some other growing tailwinds on that front. And, you know, more broadly, um, there's an estimated $70 billion of spending expected at 50 U.S. airports in the next few years to bring essentially what are these aging facilities up to date, this aging infrastructure. And some of the biggest airports like Chicago O'Hare, Los Angeles International, and New York's JFK, they're each spending $10 billion or more on their current expansions. And a lot of those investments will accommodate growing air traffic, but they'll also add facilities focused on retail and dining. So that's right in Hudson's wheelhouse, and that's just another opportunity for them to expand expand their uh, footprint, their market share within each of these um, major airports, uh, these big businesses for them. So, I'll turn it back to you, Asit. Um, any final thoughts from on you, from you uh, in terms of what you'll be watching as the company closes out 2018, or any other takeaways or updates uh, you'd like to share before we move on? I've got one. Um, I actually just want to read a quote from the company's CEO, Joe D. Domizio. And uh, this is from their most recent call, and it will give more insight and perspective on how the company runs its business. And this is sort of in the context of what you just described, Vince. There's this inbuilt opportunity as aging airports in the U.S. are renovated and expanded. If you are, from the perspective of the person who's awarding contracts at a certain airport, you want to give your business to a proven leader with a um, track record, the company which is going to bring in the traffic and enhance your terminal. And that's where Hudson has an edge. It's been around for 31 years. But let me just read this, um, then we'll move on. But uh, I found this very insightful into the company's approach and how it looks at a terminal. Um, The CEO said, unlike traditional Main Street retailers, which have more control over the timing of individual store openings and closings, our business is centered on being as responsive as possible to the ever-changing dynamics of each individual terminal and airport. In fact, we view each of our terminals as one large individual store where we populate concepts, brands, and merchandising categories to maximize growth. Our top-line opportunity and our entire expense structure work across the entire terminal, similar to the way a big-box retailer would manage an individual store. In this context, we are constantly managing our portfolio of stores in a particular terminal to maximize our exposure to passenger traffic and optimize penetration. So, just to give you a sense of the sort of holistic way that Hudson, with its various concepts, uh, looks at growing that business over time. It's really shuffling pieces, whether that be a Dunkin' Donuts license um, or a perfume store or one of these more convenience uh, uh, footprints, which is offering the open island coolers and grab and go food. I really like that. It gave me more insight. And I'm looking for the next quarter for continued growth uh, and uh, more wins in terms of RFPs with other airports. All right. Thanks, Asit. Next up, we'll look more at Procter & Gable and GoPro. Thanks to Harry's for supporting Industry Focus. After years of putting up with shaves from inferior electric razors and disposables, I made the switch to Harry's and finally realized that the best shaves, the ones where you need just one, maybe two passes with the razor for a close, clean cut, they only happen with high-quality blades, and that's what Harry's offers. Combined with Harry's fantastic shave gel, even my wife loves how smooth my skin feels, how great I smell after a shave. And just as important to me in my day-to-day routine, 
Harry's helps me get out the door in the mornings as quickly as possible. Harry's offers a close, comfortable shave at a fair price because the founders were fed up with overpaying for expensive razors with unnecessary features. They knew that the best experience comes down to the quality of the blades, so they bought a factory that has been producing some of the highest quality blades in the world for nearly a century. And by selling directly to you online, Harry's can offer their blades at a much lower price than the leading brand, just $2 compared to $4 or more from the competition. They're so confident that they offer a quality guarantee. If you don't love your shave, let Harry's know within 30 days for a full refund. So Harry stands behind the quality of their blades, but they know that switching razors isn't an easy decision, and they've created a trial offer that you can claim at harrys.com fool. The trial set comes with everything you need to experience a proper Harry shave, including a five-blade razor, razor handle, shave gel, and travel blade cover. Listeners of Industry Focus can redeem their trial at harrys.com fool. Make sure you go to harrys.com fool to redeem your offer and let them know I sent you to help support the show. Okay, so our next company is Procter & Gamble. So specifically, we want to look at the company and the impact that activist investor Nelson Peltz has had since joining the board uh, in March of this year. And that whole process was its own epic saga that we talked about uh, last August. And when we last covered this news, um, you know, Peltz and his fund or his firm, Tree and Partners, they were angling for a greater say in the company's future by this big proxy battle. And supporting their push was the fact that even though uh, Procter & Gamble has been in this multi-year reorganization, uh, they've reduced their brand portfolio by essentially two-thirds from 200-plus brands to less than 70. Um, the company is really still putting up weak growth for remaining business lines. And a lot of people look at Procter & Gamble, the fact that it's a dividend king, so they've been growing their annual payout over 50 years. But its total return performance in the past decade has really lagged the broad market and their competitors. Um, so again, Pelts took a place on the board earlier this year. Um, and to address that underperformance, um, you know, his fund, Trian, they've suggested several changes. Asa, can you walk us through some of the their major suggestions? Yes. Yeah, so this goes back to the original white paper, the argument for um, <clears throat> Peltz joining the board, which was uh, in the fall of 2017. Uh, this summer, as Vince alluded to, the company uh, regained some ground uh, the stock was down, I think, almost 24% during the year. It's it's down about 8%. This is after Nelson Peltz uh, told a uh, leadership uh, conference in the industry that the company was considering his proposals. The major point of the proposal is to organize Procter and Gamble in a way that promotes accountability, um, and the, he wants the company to be organized basically into three standalone units. Uh, the first would be beauty, grooming, and healthcare. That would have about 26 billion in sales. The second would be fabric and home care, which would be $21 billion in sales annually. And the third would be baby, feminine, and family care, which would have about $18 billion in sales. So the company, as it's structured now, has separate marketing units, sales units, from its many divisions. Uh, and even though it's whittled down its total number of brands, as Vince just mentioned, down to about, I think, um, I forgot the exact number you mentioned, Vince, but about 70 is the last number I heard. It still has a very complex organizational structure. So Peltz wants to really whittle that down. And if you read between the tea leaves, this opens it up to maybe separating those divisions, maybe spinning off the weakest division in a few years. And that's a hallmark of the activist investor. Simplify the company structure and then spin off divisions, uh, make them their own publicly traded company, usually with a tax advantage in doing so, which rewards shareholders. 
uh, this sort of uh, rest of the points didn't get quite as much publicity, but I want to read through them. They're important for current investors to note. The second point is to ensure management's 12 to $13 billion productivity plan delivers results. If you're a longtime shareholder of Procter & Gamble, you have probably wondered, like, why do I keep hearing every two or three years about this multi-billion dollar productivity plan? The stock never really seems to get a benefit from this. When I read the financials, the margins sort of look the same. So, Peltz says it's all well and good that the company has engaged in the cost-cutting endeavors that it has, and it's worked on its supply chain. But you have to see bottom-line results. You have to see top-line results from the greater efficiency, which drives more sales volume. So, he wants to hold management accountable to this moving target of multi-billion-dollar productivity plans that take place over several years. The third is to fix the innovation machine. Peltz has long argued that Procter & Gamble is broken and that it hasn't come up with a major new brand, um, by his count, in, in over a decade. The one quibble that investors should have with that is that Procter & Gamble has had a tremendous amount of innovation, but it's focused that innovation on packaging. Tide Pods is probably the most easy example to recognize. This was a market that Procter & Gamble created by itself, simply taking its detergent and repackaging it in a new formula. Um, and it sold billions of dollars worth of that product. But what Peltz argues is that, look, you've got to come up with new brands, and your innovation machine can't be focused just on packaging alone. The fourth point is develop small, mid-sized, and local brands. Anyone who shops is familiar with the disruption that's going on in retail. With fewer visits to the grocery store and more opportunities to order stuff online or have it delivered to your house, you don't have that visual read-through on the grocery shelves where many of Procter & Gamble's products sit, and whether those be uh, grooming or beauty. What you would normally see in your weekly cycle of buying groceries, that's getting disrupted. And Peltz argues that without um, buying up small, innovative brands that you might buy through an alternate channel, Procter & Gamble's missing out on a huge opportunity. And I wanted to point out that uh, the giant rival of Procter & Gamble, Unilever, has actually been pretty savvy at snapping up these small and mid-cap companies over the past couple of years. Um, by my count, they spent about $9 billion, and management says that this new portfolio of smaller companies, most of them have a sustainability bent, they have a local focus. They return about 16% annually per revenue dollar spent um, or per investment dollar spent on these. So it's working out for Unilever. And Peltz argues that look, Procter and Gamble, you need to start ramping up the MA and jump in this game as well. And to that next point, he says make MA a growth strategy and a core competency. Um, we will grant that Procter and Gamble has made at least one uh, natural products uh, acquisition in the past year. I believe it bought manufactured native deodorant for $100 million cash. This was last n November. But it has not really jumped into the mergers and acquisition games game as it probably should. Sixth point is win in digital. Uh, we all know what that means. Procter & Gamble does have a good outreach in digital commerce. But Peltz will point out that companies that he's been involved with in the past have spent more and really researched more innovative ways than Procter & Gamble has engaged. And he wants them to ramp up digital spending to get to the consumer who isn't going to those uh, retail outlets. And the last point is address the insular culture. 
Uh, personally, I have written a lot about Procter & Gamble's tendency to simply repurchase shares and issue dividends with uh, the massive amounts of cash that it generates. If you take a look at the company's balance sheet, it's always slightly um, heading towards that moderate to high leverage, and current liabilities are always outweighing current assets. With such a, a big fortress-type balance sheet, uh, the company has really done little to invest, in my opinion, in radical strategies to innovate and grow its sales. But it returns a heck of a lot of money to shareholders. And I think that one of the things Peltz is getting at in this idea of addressing an insular culture is that there is no skin in the game for management. There have not been hard consequences for underperformance. The stock has been flat for several years, and it's sort of coasted on this formula of selling its brands um, in the marketplace, buying back a lot of shares, issuing dividends, being that safe widows and orphans dividend issuing stock. And he wants to break that up and bring out more people from the outside to fill the ranks of P&G's middle management with folks who have been in rotations at other companies. The last thing I'll say is Procter & Gamble is famous for moving people up in its own organization. That is definitely a positive in terms of performance among individual middle management and executives as they move into higher management. The fallback of that, or the problem with that, is that you do tend to have a dearth of ideas from the outside, and trends can upend you, and you don't see them coming. And This is one of his primary arguments on why the company has underperformed. It's just really had its head in the sand, in his opinion. Asa, thank you for that awesome rundown uh, in terms of the some of the strategic changes and the organizational changes that Peltz is pursuing. Things have been relatively quiet uh, in terms of headlines and updates from the company. Um, so there has been some stock price movement since Peltz managed uh, since he mentioned that management will is seriously considering some of the suggestions that he and his firm have made. But I'm curious, just in terms of your your personal view uh, on some of uh, these changes, in terms of maybe the top one or two priorities that could have a, a near to midterm impact or the greatest near to midterm impact for the company, its results, shareholders. What do you think? Well, if we went with that very first idea, which is to break the company up into three uh, major divisions, I think that would have a really strong impact near-term and medium-term on the stock because it would be that sort of radical change which P&G has avoided. That's the single thing, most important thing the company could do if it wants to inject some life into the stock. If the company wants to compromise, it could signal to uh, Wall Street that it is interested in maybe spinning off a smaller division or a, a group of, of companies and pursuing this mergers and acquisition strategy. I think that would have a medium to long-term impact on the stock and would probably be the best way to go. As, as I've said, the company has put so much of its free cash flow back into shareholders' pockets, but when the stock doesn't move after years and years of following this formula, Maybe it's time to allocate capital in a different place and to acquire some other younger companies. So these couple of things, I think, would have, out of all the options, the most impact. Um, and I, I too, Vince, I find it interesting that since Peltz joined, it's been sort of quiet. One of the things that you get when you bring on the activist shareholder and add him or her to the board is that that outside criticism, that loud voice suddenly quiets down. Now they're on the inside and they have to produce. <laughs> so. It will be very interesting to see over the next few quarters 
what they choose to enact. Um, he has the street's attention after that conference in June. There is some expectation now with the stock sort of clawing its way back to par that something is going to shake out in the next one to two quarters. And, you know, I'm sure we'll be um, returning to this if, if we see that happen. Awesome. All right. We have a couple more minutes running short on time here. I want to make sure that we can talk a little bit about uh, GoPro. So, ticker GPRO, uh, shareholders of this company have had to stomach quite a bit of volatility since the company uh, went public back in 2014. Keep in mind that the stock fell from almost $90 per share and over $10 billion in market cap shortly after the IPO uh, to just $6 per share and less than a billion dollars uh, currently. So, last two years in particular, um, CEO Nicholas Woodman, he has himself acknowledged a lot of uh, missteps in areas like their inventory management, their pricing for their hero camera lineup, um, the, f- the failure of the Karma drone, which was a quote, was pretty, um, pretty, a pretty big PR disaster for the company, and then execution during their holiday shopping season, which is really, really critical for GoPro's business. So revenue last year down 25% from the company's peak in 2015. But more recently, uh, the second quarter earnings report had a much more um, bullish tone to it than we've seen in some time for management. Um, they had a much more clear product and pricing strategy for the holiday quarter. They're talking about. Increased units sold this year over 2017, um, guidance for really rapidly expanding gross margins, uh, which combined with a tight lid on expenses could lead to a positive bottom line in the second half of this year and then full year profitability in 2019, which is an important goal for management. Uh, what do you think, Asin? Um, the company's new Hero 7 lineup of three cameras it launches actually in the next few days, I think internationally, September 27th, and then domestically, September 30th. Um, are you feeling as good about the company's uh, prospects now? as management seems to. Maybe I'm not as enthusiastic as management, but I do think that they have an opportunity here if they can execute in this fourth quarter. Uh, One thing you mentioned caught my eye, gross margin in the last quarter uh, was 29%. If you just came in on an alien spaceship, you'd say, wow, that's a really low gross margin for a manufacturer. But hey, it was 22% 22% in um, the, the prior uh, quarter, sequential quarter. So there's a jump sequentially. And, and one of the things we saw um, in that report is the comparison of sequential numbers. In, in other words, saying that, hey, our year-over-year comparisons aren't great. But if you just look at the leap we've made in just uh, this these last three months, uh, they did have some impressive numbers in there. And I think with this season, um, and to your question about the, the new lineup, I think that they may benefit from something which has been missing before. Uh, In the past, the company really wanted to dazzle consumers every time they had a new lineup, and they did spend good money on enhancing their product, but pricing was always an issue. Um, Sometimes they overshot, sometimes they hurt their own margin. And what we've seen in this new lineup, um, I am no uh, device expert, but what I've been able to grasp is that the new Hero lineup focuses on image stabilization. So if you think about Steadicam uh, in the film industry, it uses what a technology which the company calls gimbal-like, gimbal being the type of device which steadies the image. They call it, I think, hyper-stabilization. This is actually a lower cost move for the company versus having new sensors like higher-end sensors and better image quality or a, a smoother HD quality that it could offer. What that does, it will help them raise the average selling price of their devices, but it's not outpricing them in the market or giving consumers a product which 
they may or may not want. And I think that is a savvy move, and it's a more realistic move. And I think if I had one word to characterize management's approach for this quarter and maybe moving forward, it's realistic. What are your thoughts, Vince? Yeah, I think it's a good uh, one-word summary uh, of their approach to things now. Uh, At a conference earlier this month, I saw, let me pull up the quote here. So, Woodman, he talked about, um, and and I quote here, a maturing of our approach to the business with a better understanding of who our customer is, understanding customer segmentation of our market, understanding pricing sensitivity, and understanding customer desire to see annual product refreshes from us. So, they seem to have a grasp, a better grasp now of some of the mistakes that have made previously. And they really hammered on this clear strategy that they have for this upcoming holiday season, um, where they realized their strength, their area of expertise lies um, not in drones, you know, not in this content or multimedia platform that never materialized, where they still have uh, the strongest position. They dominate most of the action camera market. Uh, originally, it was with high-end devices, and now they're making sure that they can um, serve the needs of customers at lower price points as well. So they have this $199, $299, $399 pricing model for the three new cameras in this 2018 lineup. And that introductory-level camera was something that they said that was missing last year, and management said that was a major driver of their shortfall in terms of results in the last holiday season. And this is really a beaten down stock. They're trading at less than one time sales. So uh, it definitely seems uh, at face value like an attractive opportunity if you believe in the ongoing recovery. recovery. I'll be watching um, the fourth quarter results pretty closely to see if some of the bullish demand uh, materializes and also the solid execution that they're promising materializes. Any final thoughts from you, Asin? Sure. One last thought is a note of caution. If you're thinking of jumping in now, there is this outlier. The company has strong demand for its products in the fourth quarter, um, but it's having, as other manufacturers are, some component supply issues. So with its resistors and capacitors, it has a major contract manufacturer, Jabil Circuit, and its ability to meet total demand may be crimped for the next few quarters. And quarter four is right before it's that important holiday season. So that's a little caveat. Maybe one more I'll add is that historically, um, the company has botched its fourth quarter, that all-important holiday season. I don't think that will be the case, honestly, this quarter. I think from everything Vince uh, just said, I, I totally agree with that. I think they have some clarity, but this external factor also may hit them. But definitely a stock now that it's the first time in a long time I felt this, okay, this could be a value investment. Up until now, I really haven't had that sense. But I do like management's idea that, hey, we could be this great manufacturer of devices. We own the market. We've got huge market share. Why don't we just make our products better, um, more affordable, and with features people want? That is a a recipe for success. So, me too. I'm going to watch this fourth quarter very carefully. All right. Thanks, Austin. Um, That's all the time we have for today. Uh, Great to have you with us, as always. Absolutely. A pleasure. Pools, thanks for tuning in. Remember that if you have any uh, questions or topics you'd like to hear about, you can reach the Industry Focus crew via our email, industryfocus at fool.com, or on Twitter, look for MF Industry Focus. People on the program may own companies discussed in the show, and the Molly Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So, buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear during the program. Thanks again for listening. Fool on. Mm-hmm.